Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. This is an RNZ podcast. Hi, I'm Dan Slevin, sitting in for Simon Morris. This week on At The Movies, a young woman is terrorised by her ex-partner, but nobody can see it. Or him. He said that wherever I went, he would find me, walk right up to me, and I wouldn't be able to see him. In totalitarian Europe, an idealistic young Welshman investigates one of the crimes of the century. The Soviet Union is not the workers' paradise that was promised. It is not the great experiment that you read about in the press. Stalin is not the man who you think he is. And in late 19th century America, two titans fight for control of the future of power itself. Did I mention that his system's lethal? Or you reach out and touch a doorknob or a rail and well, you become the circuit. Just to be clear on that point, Will you die? We seem to be noting the end of eras all the time these days, but last week saw what might be the end of a very notable one. French movie magazine Cahiers du Cinéma was recently sold to a group of investors featuring political and media luminaries and at least eight major French film producers. The 15 editorial staff of the magazine didn't like how this looked and all resigned. Now there's no one to put the magazine out and nearly 70 years of robust and illuminating film criticism looks like being no more. Why is Cahiers du Cinéma important? Well, it was the breeding ground for the French New Wave of the 1960s. Eric Roma, Jacques Rivette, Jean-Luc Godard and François Truffaut all wrote for the publication in the 50s before becoming esteemed filmmakers themselves. Truffaut was famously banned from the 1958 Cannes Film Festival after several scathing articles in Cahiers criticising the festival and the French film industry. Cahiers was born out of the post-World War II, post-liberation cinema culture where France was inundated with American commercial cinema that had previously been unavailable to them under occupation. Truffaut and his collaborators were among the first critics to examine commercial cinema as a genuine art form and to see directors who had previously just been considered professional journeymen, directors like Howard Hawks and Alfred Hitchcock, as artists in their own right and the ultimate authors of their own work, auteurs, if you will. Always strongly politically engaged, for a period in the 1970s it was run by a Maoist collective, K.A. tried its best to hold the line against the creeping show-business reporting trend in film criticism. But the final straw was the new ownership and the fact that the fiercely proud editorial staff would not be able to guarantee that they were free of industry influence, that they were genuinely independent. It's always possible that another Cahiers will arise from the ashes, but the new ownership seems intent on forming partnerships with the industry rather than critiquing it from the sidelines. James! 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 Uh, yeah, what, what? 
What? What happened? What happened? What? I saw some things. It was right there. It was right there. There were footprints. I saw it. You saw, you saw, saw footprints? I, yes, I saw in the sheets. I saw it right there. I saw them. I saw There's someone in here. There's someone in here. Sam, put that stupid thing on. You're, you're the one who bought it for me. Who you gonna spray? Who? James, I saw it. I swear. Hey. See. Adrian will haunt you if you let him. Don't let him. In 1897, H.G. Wells wrote a novel about a scientist who discovers the power to become invisible, but without the power to change back. The experience pushes the poor man over the edge into madness and criminality, but there has always been the question of whether Wells' invisible man was already well on the way to being a psychopath before his mad science experiment. In the latest version of the story, Australian writer-director Lee Whannell doubles down on that theory. What if our mad scientist chooses to become invisible in order to behave as badly as possible, to torment and brutalise the woman he loves, to exercise his power over her? The Handmaid's Tale's Elizabeth Moss plays Cecilia, an architect and professional woman now trapped in an abusive and controlling relationship with Adrian, a tech genius and expert in the science of optics. One night she manages to escape from his luxurious but remote beach house, but she knows that he won't give her up that easily. Hiding in the house of single dad cop James, a friend of her sister, she's told that Adrian has committed suicide, supposedly in grief at her leaving him, and that his lawyer, who is also his brother, has a final letter to read before she will get a totally unexpected cash bequest. Something is fishy here, but only Cecilia can smell it. Back at the house, strange things start to occur. Kitchen fires, items going missing, the reappearance of a pill bottle that she lost in the escape. Cecilia feels like she's going mad, and even though they're sympathetic, her companions are tempted to agree. He has figured out a way to be invisible. You know exactly what I'm talking about. He's not dead. I just can't see him. Okay. No, I agree with you. Adrian was brilliant. But it wasn't because of anything he invented. It was how he got in people's heads. You think about it. He came up with the perfect way to torture you, even in death. Only thing more brilliant than inventing something that makes you invisible is not inventing it, but making you think he did. He's not dead, Tom. Of course, Adrian has found a way to hide in plain sight and is doing everything in his power to push her over the cliff of sanity. If I can't have you, no one will have you and all that malevolent jazz. The first two-thirds of The Invisible Man are absolutely terrific, a brilliant example of how even low-budget B-movie commercial cinema can have a heart and a brain. 
It's the best and cleverest portrait of domestic abuse and toxic masculinity in a long while. And I hope that men watching the film who might think that Adrian's behaviour is somehow exaggerated will be put straight by their female companions. Even though it's a fantasy, for many women, Cecilia's story will feel like their own lived experience. It's impossible to talk about this version of The Invisible Man without mentioning the term gaslighting, a term that's now in pretty common usage, but that was popularised thanks to two films called Gaslight, adapted from a successful Broadway play. In the play and the films, a woman, most famously portrayed by Ingrid Bergman in the 1944 version, is driven mad by her husband, who manipulates her and everyone around her into thinking that she is insane. In popular usage today, we see it most often when men deny doing or saying things that they clearly did, but those denials are so vehement and often violent that even the witnesses begin to doubt their own ears. Current American politics is a great example of this in action. Anyway, Gaslight is a rare example of a phrase from cinema that has truly entered not only popular culture, but scientific and medical culture too. You know what I think we need? I think we get kicked out out and have a little girls' night, eat some cake. Yeah, I do like cake. (laughs) Oh, my God. Sydney, are you okay? No, no, Sydney, I didn't... No, What happened? What happened? She hit me. What? No, 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 James, I did not do that. Sydney, I would never hit you. I love you. I would never do that, James. It was him. He's here, I swear to you. Enough. Sydney, enough. Just stop it. Are you okay? I don't want to stay, Sydney. I'm sorry. I would never... Hey, hey. See? Right now my priority is getting my baby somewhere safe. Do you understand? But back to the film itself, and in the final third, though once the how-is-he-doing-it question has been answered, it changes from being a blisteringly effective psychological horror to more of an action thriller. Some of the atmosphere disappears along with the mystery. Moss is, as always, a revelation. Arguably the bravest actress working today, she carries this film almost single-handedly, often with nothing visible to act against, and her transformation into a 21st century Charles Bronson is completely believable. Wanell, the writer-director, co-created the Saw series of bloody horror films with James Wan, and they were underestimated for how clever they were with their plotting and their themes. I was never a big fan of what some people call torture porn and watched most of the Saw films through my fingers, but I did appreciate that they had a certain moral core to them, as the best horror films do. And The Invisible Man is certainly in that bracket. I'm scared. You don't have to be scared of him anymore. He was a sociopath, completely in control of everything. He said that wherever I went, he would find me, walk right up to me, and I wouldn't be able to see him. The Invisible Man is rated R16 for violence, cruelty, self-harm and domestic abuse. That's the first time I've seen those particular notes from our classification office, and I applaud them for being so specific. We don't want to re-traumatise anyone in the name of entertainment. Moscow 71795. Moscow 71795. How are you getting on, dear? I've never been so 
My wife and I like to stay until the very end of the credits when we go to the movies because we're always curious about which country's taxpayers came up with the incentives required to get the film made. For The Invisible Man, for example, we were surprised to discover that a film that was set in San Francisco was actually made in Sydney with support from the Australian Film Production Incentive Scheme. And the drama Mr Jones managed to get support from all over Europe. Ukraine, the Silesian Film Board, the Polish Film Institute. There's Russian money in there and some tax credits from the UK government too so that Edinburgh can pretend to be London in the 1930s. There's so much sleight of hand in filmmaking these days, as much behind the camera as in front of it. You can see why Ukraine would get behind this film. After all, it's the story of an idealistic young journalist who tries to tell the world about one of the greatest crimes of the 20th century, Stalin's deliberate genocidal famine of Ukraine in the 1930s, a crime that's still not widely enough known. As the film opens, young journalist Gareth Jones, played by James Norton, is briefing some stuffy British politicians about the imminent danger posed by the new Chancellor of Germany, Adolf Hitler, who he has just managed to score an exclusive interview with. Preoccupied with Britain's own economic problems during the Great Depression, Prime Minister Lloyd George and his government don't pay much heed to Jones's warnings, and his role as a special adviser for foreign affairs fizzles out. Concerned that nobody in Britain appeared to know very much about the newfangled Soviet Union and Joseph Stalin's intentions, Jones heads to Moscow to try and score an interview with the Soviet leader, not realising that he was going to stumble, literally, on the biggest story of all. Hello. Paul, this is Gareth Jones in London. Listen, I'm on my way to Moscow. Gareth, I've been trying to reach you. So we are coming here. Paul, I need your help again, this time arranging an interview with Stalin. Please tell me you know a way. Go to Walter Durante at the New York Times. He has influence. I'm persona non grata at the moment. Listen, I really need to talk to you. I found something big. You can break the story wide open. It's worse than we thought before. Paul? Paul? Moscow in 1933 is a strange place. Informants and secret police are everywhere, but something of a blind eye is being turned to the decadence of the expat community, Americans, Brits, Western Europeans, many of whom were infatuated by the Soviet Union's promise of a new egalitarian utopia, but quite a few who were there because they saw there was a quid to be made in helping Russia and its republics modernise. But where were those quids going to come from? The Soviet Union was broke, but Stalin's five-year plans still insisted upon rapid industrialization. This is my report on the Soviet question. What's your answer? I don't have one. The Kremlin is broke. So how were the Soviets suddenly on a spending spree? Jones meets the famous New York Times correspondent Walter Durante, played loosely by Peter Sarsgaard, and Durante's young protege, Ada Brooks, Vanessa Kirby. Durante was a real person, and something of a famous apologist for the regime, but Miss Brooks, I think, is fictional. 
She serves something of a purpose, I suppose, in warming up young Jones to the possibility of romance and also warning him about the dangers of transgressing against the government by going to Ukraine, which is, of course, exactly what he does next. Slipping the leash of his dopey minder, Jones swaps trains and heads for the real Ukraine, only to be appalled at what he discovers. Starvation on a massive scale, corpses in the street where they fell, children eating tree bark, stone soup, and ultimately each other, while the grain that would keep them alive is shipped off to feed the workers in the new factories or to be sold to pay for the new development. Now, historians are not united on whether the famine was a deliberate act by Stalin and his government or an unintended consequence of mismanagement, but the film makes it pretty clear where it stands. The way it's portrayed, it seems that the Soviet experiment was not just an economic and social one, but it was also an imperial experiment. Like in all empires, territory must expand to provide resources for the home country. Ukraine and Kazakhstan, similarly, were simply Russia's larder. While the story remains an urgent one to tell, upwards of five million people died of starvation during the famines and we hardly hear anything about it, some of the telling in Mr Jones is a little unwieldy. There's a framing device featuring George Orwell writing his famous novel Animal Farm and the director, the legendary Polish film and television maker Agnieszka Holland, occasionally indulges in some questionable stylistic choices. But Norton is perfectly earnest in the lead role, someone whose goodness and decency might prove to be too much to be true if handled less dexterously. He's not an actor that I've paid much attention to in the past, but I hear that he's being touted as a possible James Bond, and I can see that in him now. The Soviet Union is not the workers' paradise that was promised. It is not the great experiment that you read about in the press. Stalin is not the man who you think he is. Are you saying there's no hope? Mr. Jones is rated M for drug use, nudity and content that may disturb and is playing in selected cinemas now. Tonight things could change. I hope they do. And if they do, they'll change there and there. And my boys and I caught in a jar what before now has only flashed across the night sky. Let's say we unscrew the lid and see what happens. You ready? Three, two. Now that a New York court has confirmed what a terrible man Harvey Weinstein is, perhaps we can start to talk about what a terrible producer he was too. He was a small-time rock promoter from Buffalo who got lucky a few times and ended up riding the coattails of genuinely creative people to Oscar glory and box office millions. There are stories emerging now of filmmakers having to fight to stop him meddling in their projects, of Weinstein buying perfectly good films only to shelve them so they wouldn't compete with his own more prestigious pictures. It isn't only the careers of actresses that he derailed, but there are plenty of male filmmakers who found their development arrested by Weinstein's poor cinematic judgment. 
recent Oscar winner for Parasite, Bong Joon-ho, famously conned Weinstein into letting him keep a shot of a fish being gutted in the excellent 2012 sci-fi flick Snowpiercer by telling him that his father had been a fisherman and that the shot was in honour of him. A complete lie. Which brings us to the current war, a not-so-new picture about the famous battle over the future of electricity in the 1880s between Thomas Alva Edison and George Westinghouse, between direct current and alternating current. Did I mention that his system's lethal? You reach out and touch a doorknob or a rail and you become the circuit. Just to be clear on that point, will you die? Weinstein produced the picture and had insisted that it screen at the Toronto Film Festival in 2017 before it was finished. The reviews were poor and the director, Alfonso Gomez-Rejon, was devastated. Then the Weinstein sexual abuse accusations came out and no one wants to touch anything with his name on it. The film was shelved, probably never to be seen again. Luckily for Gomez Rejon, one of the other producers was Martin Scorsese, and he has a clause in all his contracts that give him approval of any finished film. Gomez Rejon implored Scorsese to use that clause so that he could get the film back and finish it, and nearly three years later, that is what he has done. Ten minutes shorter, but with five extra scenes, thanks to an expensive day of reshoots, The Current War now has a director's cut and is a tight and entertaining history lesson with a great script and strong performances. How did he get the bulbs? What a roaring silence from the brightest minds of America. He's using Hiram's design. But Hiram stole from me! Sue him. We already did. The court upheld his patent. I'm talking about Westinghouse. Find an angle. Take a trip to Barrington and see for yourself. You don't even slightly irk that 15 years of work is being filched from right under your eyes. Not again. I build a system here. And you go shopping for patents to cobble together something to legally steal what is mine. If the bulbs are a battle, then nail them on the dynamos. We can't. He's not even using direct current, sir. Benedict Cumberbatch plays Thomas Edison, the wizard of Menlo Park and America's most famous inventor. He or his team have invented a light bulb that can glow for more than eight hours and has harnessed direct current or DC power to light them up. This is obviously a game changer for a world still reliant on gaslight, that word again, or candles, but DC electricity doesn't travel far. He would need a transformer on every block. Meanwhile, engineer George Westinghouse, played by Michael Shannon, has realised that alternating current or AC power can travel much further distances but at much higher voltages. The race to wire up America is on, with Edison feeling like he is having his ideas ripped off at every turn. Also in attendance is the Serbian emigre engineer Nikola Tesla, who has the engineering nous to solve all the technical problems both men are having, but no ability to negotiate or build a business of his own. Look, Westinghouse will never have a complete system. He can't even power a solar But I can machine. solve that problem. Instead of again converting the currents to work with a commutator, I would pass alternating current differing in phase through two or more energizing circuits. You're supposed to be working on commutators for DC dynamos. Well, I have. Look, I have done everything you have asked, but you are making a mistake. What? Direct current 
Maybe fine for cities when the when the buildings are close together, but most of your country is empty spaces. Only high voltage can span the distance. You are not thinking long term. This technology is within your grasp. I can build you an efficient motor. Have you tried it? No. Look, in my head, it is nearly complete. They claim to have their heads full of sonnets and symphonies, but their only problem seems to be they can't quite write it down. Let me try. No, I can't start again. I got orders from Michigan. I got a room full of press waiting for me. Do what you were hired to do. So you will not honor your word about the remuneration? What are you talking about? Well, you said $50,000. Are you unhappy with my contributions? I'm paying you $50,000. That was a joke. I enjoyed the current war very much. Despite the fact that it was almost entirely shot in England, it recreates a giddy period of American technological ascendancy in ways that allow the strengths and weaknesses of both men to have full expression. Edison was an egotist prone to flights of fancy and a dozen ideas a minute. He was a showboater who couldn't stand the idea of what coming second would do to his personal brand. Westinghouse was more practical and cared less about his own legacy. The wives of both men are also portrayed as being fully human beings, which is not always the case, as you know, and the marriages have the ring of authenticity about them. They feel true. Watching the current war, I found myself thinking about what it must have been like to live in such a period where hundreds of years of behaviour was about to be upended by technological innovation at a ridiculous speed. While all of this was going on in the States, in Germany, Carl Benz was perfecting what would become the first commercially available motor car. Don't you think a fence is a unique creation? Your neighbour puts one up and suddenly one becomes two. You also have a fence. There's only one problem. You see, one person on one side of the fence designed it, one person on one side built it, and... One person paid for it, and yet the other person received a fine, free fence. I didn't take your ideas. The current war is rated M for adult themes and is playing in better cinemas across the country now. And that's our program. I'm Dan Slevin, and you can find me on Twitter as at Dan Slevin. That's all one word. And there's more of me at rnz.co.nz forward slash widescreen, where you can find reviews of other interesting film and TV selections from the plethora of local online streaming services. Simon will be back in this chair next time around, so please do join him on At The Movies at the same time next week. Head over to Hulu this March, where our new shows and movies will keep you streaming all month long. Catch the award-winning movie, Poor Things, starring Emma Stone, Mark Ruffalo, and Willem Dafoe. Check out the new documentary, Freaknik, The Wildest Party Never Told, about the iconic Atlanta street party. And don't miss FX's Shogun, a reimagining of the epic tale, starring Anna Sawai. So, what are you waiting for? Go stream something new on Hulu.